Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded in front of a live audience on July 19, 2015 at Preservation Hall in Wellfleet, Massachusetts. Tonight's host is Julie Perkins, and the theme for the evening is Blindsided. Our first person coming up on the stage is Bob Costa. Everyone, give Bob a round of applause. Thank you very much. Um, I, um, yeah, up a little bit. That sounds good. That sounds good. They always pick the guy with the seven-minute story for the five-minute thing first. And uh, anyhow, um, I was uh, staying down in Tucson, Arizona, recovering from a stroke uh, with some friends in the desert. And uh, it's wonderful in the desert, except it happened to be the year that it was the 114th worst, 114 year worst drought that they ever had. So you really couldn't go outside during the daytime. And the dust covered the mountains around, you couldn't see what the hell was going on. Um, but at night we kind of settled down. And a couple of blocks away was a Dunkin' Donuts restaurant that I would go to, drink my coffee, think healing thoughts, and draw pastel pictures of the sunset in the desert on envelopes that I would eventually mail to somebody. Um, and then the people we were staying with uh, were into this guru who was going to have this big extravaganza down in Houston. And they asked us along. And it's only uh, 1,091.6 miles away and 14.24 hour drive. And we figured, why not? You know, what the heck? Uh, we get out of the heat. And uh, so we went and we packed up the car. It was a Volkswagen van. And there were seven of us in it. And uh, seven's a lucky number, and we're going to a guru festival. I mean, what could go wrong? So uh, uh, we do that. We packed up. We're driving, and we're going along. And uh, the night starts to fall, and we're pulling into Texas. And all of a sudden, a light drizzle starts to happen. <clears throat> and uh, that's fine. And we're just going along, going along. And all of a sudden, as it gets darker and darker, I'm noticing deer all over both sides of the road. It's a two-lane road on both sides, and uh, there were just so many deer. I was making me a little bit nervous that they might try to cross the road in front of us, so I got behind a double-tracted trailer and figured I don't want to pass him with seven people in the van because that's not safe, and the deer wouldn't be stupid enough to run between us and the tractor trailer if I kept my distance correct. And, uh, and so we're driving along, and as the darkness starts to settle in, sure enough, two completely insane deer decide that they're going to cross the road at that point. And how they got in front of us, between us and the trailer, I have no idea. But all I remember is the four bright eyes and one in each lane. And I hit the brakes. And the car started to skid. And I turned away into the skid. And we straightened out and started to skid the other way. And uh, I was kind of losing control because what had happened is enough moisture had gotten on the road to build up a hydroplaning situation. So it didn't really matter which way I was turning the wheel. The car was just going forward on forward motion and the weight of the vehicle skidding over the top surface of this water. And uh, there was a little girl in the car sitting between my wife and myself. And my wife wrapped herself around the little girl in case we hit the deer. And, uh, and we didn't. We managed to avoid the deer. But in doing that, and I thought we had it going great, all of a sudden, the car flips over to the right-hand side and lands on the side. I hits my shoulder, and I say, oh, whatever. 
And, uh, and we're sliding down the road on the side of the car, and then it flips up on the roof. And we're going down the road as fast as a car could go on the roof of the car. I'm looking in the rearview mirror, and I can see the people behind me sort of flopping around back and forth. And the car goes down and then into the median, and the median is shaped like this, grass. And it goes down the median on the roof, hits the bottom, turns upright, goes on its wheels, goes back up the other side, and starts heading down the opposite direction of the highway into the oncoming headlights. So just before the headlights come to us, with the car somehow, I mean, the engine was completely off. It was gone. Uh, it crawled up the side of the road and stopped about an inch in front of the fence on the other side of the highway. Some guy pulls up right next to us. Within, uh, within a minute, a truck pulls up next to us. And I saw what happened. My God, is everybody okay? And we were. Nobody was hurt. Uh, I said, but the engine's dead. I don't know what happened. And he says, I'll take a look. And calls me over and says, come here. And he shows me the battery cable, which was a flat thing like this, was sheared like somebody hit it with a sharp knife and cut it. So I've never seen anything like this in my life, you know. But I can fix it and so you can get off the road. And as he's fixing it, the state trooper finally pulls up. And he says, what happened? And I explained to him, there were two deer on the road and you know, we missed them. And so he says, so where are the deer? I said, we missed the deer. I don't know where they are, you know, but that's why we're alive. And he said, okay, he said, take a walk with me back here. Let's see what happened. I think he wanted to see if I was inebriated or not. Um, and I wasn't. And so we went all the way back, and we must have walked back 400 yards. And he finally says, this is where you hit your brakes. And we're walking forward, and he says, this is where you flipped up on the roof. And that mark went for like about 100 feet. And then we got up on the other side, and he just said, you're a very lucky man. And uh, this mechanic can get this thing for you. Just get the car off the road. And we did. And, uh, of course, we had to drive without the... Oh, I forgot. The front window also blew out. So now we're driving in the rain, in the cold, <laughs> with no front window, wrapped in blankets, until we finally got to uh, our destination. That's it. Our next storyteller up is Dick Morrill. Let's give him a round of applause. This story is about my friend Jack. Jack, when he was in his 60s, got married again, of all things, and his younger, enthusiastic wife said, Jack, they're doing a play down at the Welfley Harbor Actors Theater. They we had just opened the theater, and they need somebody about your age, and I think it would be fun if you went down and did the play. And Jack absolutely was not the kind of person who went out and got into plays. He was a book reader and stayed at home, but to keep his wife happy, he said, no, okay. And he went down and he met Frank, which was a guy who was about his age, and Frank had a lot of theater experience, and said, yeah, it'll be fun, come on, I'll, I'll be there with you, and it's a small part. You don't have a lot of lines to learn. The last thing Jack had ever memorized was the Pledge of Allegiance. When they put in Under God, he regretted having learned it in the first place. And he was a monk. Jack and Frank were going to be two monks in this play which was set in the 1400s. And it was about uh, a young guy in town who people had thought was the devil. And they were thinking of how to kill him. And he wasn't, of course, the devil. And so Jack and Frank start off the second act. 
and Jack has been working and working, memorizing his lines. And to set the scene, Frank comes out and says something about the guy down in the dungeon, the devil. And Jack says, I spent the night with him last night, and look at me, no singes for my sins. This is set in the 1400s, it's beautiful flowery language. How am I going to remember that? So Jack worked and worked and worked on his lines. And come opening night, Jack is absolutely terrified. He's got his monk's robes on with the big flowery sleeves and a hood and a sash. And, and there's going to be lights and there's going to be audience and critics. And he's got to remember, uh, no singes for my sins. And then here comes the time. Places. And Jack realizes, I got to pee. <laughs> so he runs out of the back door of the street, and he goes across the driveway to the bushes where we all, all the guys would go to pee. He says, you know, Jack, come on. And Jack, OK, OK, I'm coming. And he's running his lines through his head. And, you know, look at me, he's no singes for my sins. And uh, something's wrong. Something's wrong. He's anxious as can be. And uh, he says, no, I can do that. Zips up, and he turns around. I can do this. And he starts walking back, and he notices his left sleeve is sloshing. And he realized what was wrong wasn't the lines. He couldn't hear the pee hitting the ground. And he filled the cuff of his sleeve with pee. And it's this polyester robe. And he tips it up, and it all pours out, all. And he wrings it out, and oh, God. And well, I forgot one thing. When he says, look at me, no singes for my sins, Frank reaches over and grabs his sleeve, which has a little bit of a singe on it, and he sniffs it. <laughs> and Jack says, oh, I leaned over a candle last week. I can do this. Anyway, he's walking in the sloshing, and he's thinking, the lights, the critics, the audience, the sleeve, and Frank is going to grab my sleeve and sniff it, blindsided. He made it. What he actually ended up doing was, look at me, no singes for my sins. And when he got home, his wife couldn't, was too nervous to go, so she's sitting there waiting and waiting, waiting. And Jack comes in, finally home from the play, and he walks by her, and he goes, starts going right up the stairs. And she said, Jack, how'd it go? And he said, I remembered all my lines, but I pissed in my sleeve. <laughs> I've heard break a leg, but I've never heard, don't piss in your sleeve. Next up, we have Kevin Duthie. Is that right? Yeah. What is it? Did I totally mispronounce it? So when I saw the title "Blindsided," I uh, I immediately thought of my, my dad, and uh, so I thought I'd come here tonight and just tell a story about my dad, or tell about my dad, um, just to sort of honor him. He is alive. I spoke to him today. Um, he's 83. Um, and I guess as I go on with the story, you'll know why I thought of him. 
Um, my dad is a, uh, is a very happy-go-lucky Scotsman, always has been. Um, he likes to drink, he likes to have a good time, he likes to tell jokes. He's not the deepest guy. You're not going to go and sort of approach him about, uh, you know, to process anything or talk about life's, uh, you know, the hidden means of life. Uh, you can pick someone else for that. My dad's going to joke, um, make you laugh. And, um, and, uh, and my dad's always been like that. Um, and uh, now, the last 15 years, my dad's been blind. He uh, had this immaculate generation, so within a couple years, he, he went blind. And so um, it's been about 15 years now. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been on the Cape for about 15 years now. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of times when I've sort of imagined what it's like for him to be blind, um, you know, uh, walking on the beach, uh, trying to keep my balance with my eyes closed, trying to, you know, think, what is it like for him, you know? And, uh, um, you know, I, I can't really understand it. He's also someone that doesn't really remind, he's not someone to remind you that he's blind. Um, he never mentions it. Um, as far as he's concerned, he's not. And uh, he, uh, he sort of does, he, he shows that in how he gets around town. Um, and, um, but my dad is a jokester. Uh, he, uh, he was, um, from one of my earliest memories of him is, uh, is uh, um, going up to women, random women on the street in suburban New Jersey, saying, uh, and meeting them, trying to pick them up. Um, in a joking way, and, and them asking, so what's your name? And him saying, Tom. And then, of course, saying, Tom who? And then they'd say, Tom Cruise. Um, and that was, that's how he started his, uh, his talks with people. Um, and my earliest memory of my dad is my mom telling my dad to take me out to the car and, uh, and show me how it works. And so he opened the hood of the car, and he uh, basically looked at me and said, you know, all right, so what do you want to know? And I said, Dad, I'm really not interested. And he closed the hood and he said, we'll never have to do that again. And, uh, and, and he was good that way. He just, you know, he sort of just kind of let things flow. Um, my mom was um, unhappy with that. But, um, and, uh, you know, my dad also, uh, you know, I remember, uh, you know, I have three sisters. I'm the only male in the family. And so he very, um, growing up, he, uh, um, was insistent that I have my own room. <clears throat> so he created this enormous attic room for me to keep me away from the girls, um, to give me some space growing up. And uh, I've always appreciated him for that. Um, the other thing that, uh, that happened, um, you have to understand that I come, from a, uh, I come from a Scottish on his side and Italian Syrian family on the other side. So he really never had a chance. Um, he, um, all my relatives uh, li lived on the same street, um, including his and my grandparents and my aunts and uncles, and I went to school with all of my first cousins, all in a small town in New Jersey, northern New Jersey. And uh, so at 11, um, when my mom um, uh, met a woman at PTA and they decided to uh, go upstairs and close the bedroom door and put a lock on it, um, it was going to be news um, in the town. And, uh, and it was. Um, there were four of us and five of, of uh, the other kids that we all went to school together. And, and very slowly during that time, this is the 70s, uh, where, you know, the biggest, the only lesbian that anyone knew was uh, Billie Jean King. 
Um, and I always wondered how he dealt with that. Uh, he was always very quiet about it. And, uh, and sort of, uh, you know, and as divorces go, I remember playing, uh, playing all kinds of sports, whether it be football or soccer or tennis. And uh, because the divorce was going on, he could never come to my matches. But I always looked and I could always see him. Um, he'd always park his oil truck. He was an oil man, um, home, home fuel oil. He would always park, you know, a couple blocks away and he would never miss a match of mine. He was always there. Um, and all I had to do was just sort of look around, even though he couldn't be right up with me, I could just look around and I could see him down there. And, uh, you know, so he, 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 he just lived for his kids. And, he, and me and him together, you know, him, me being his only son, uh, I, uh, one minute, okay. Um, you know, I, 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 it was sort of me and him and all the females. Um, and uh, so uh, years progress, and, and I remember when I um, decided that I was gay and uh, had to end up telling him. And uh, so I, I was living in New York City with my boyfriend, and he knew my boyfriend. He, uh, he loved Rob, um, but he just didn't know that I also loved Rob. <laughs> and uh, so um, the first thing that happened was uh, I went to dinner with my mother and my twin sister, and after a couple, two-hour dinner, uh, basically at the end I said, you know, and I just want to let you know, I hope you love me still, but I'm gay. And my mother turned around and said, well, while we're being honest, so am I. <laughs> and, and so um, we both looked at my twin sister and she said, nope. <laughs> um, so the next thing I had to do is, you know, go through the family and tell people. And uh, so I brought my dad into New York City and uh, he... Um, I told him, and uh, I, wanted, I wanted him to be with me and see his reaction, and I didn't know how he was going to be. And the very first thing he did, without missing a beat, is he looked at me, and he had a concerned look on his face, and then he just looked at me and he said, you know, some guy gave me a blowjob when I was in the Navy. And, and to him, that was his way of making me feel comfortable and okay. <laughs> um, and it kind of worked. Uh, <laughs> for the moment. Um, so, you know, uh, I didn't want to, I sort of like didn't want to ask any more questions about that. <laughs> but uh, my dad is, is someone that, uh, um, my dad is, is someone that is, has always been there for his kids. His, he's, not the, he's, not the most, uh, he's not the most intelligent guy. He's a, he's, I'm, I'm a carpenter contractor. They certainly sent me to all the best schools to not be one. And I came back to what I love, and that's sort of, you know, he's not big on advice. I, I, could, I could count maybe on one hand what he's told me as far as advice in my life. Um, but the one thing that he has been for me is um, he's been there. And uh, aside from any words uh, that anyone could ever say, he's been there. He shows up. And, uh, and, um, and, and so that... That's sort of how I live my life uh, for the people that I love, is to just show up. Um, there's so much to be said for that and, and not uh, a huge lecture uh, or trying to tell people how they should be, um, just to show up. And, uh, and you don't have to be that smart. You just have to be there. Um, and my dad has been there for his kids. Um, he, uh, this was the first year, he's 83. Uh, that he forgot my birthday. Um, he's always very good about birthdays, and a couple of days ago I had my 54th. 
and he forgot it. And so he called today and he said, you know, I'm sorry I forgot your birthday. And I know he's sort of getting on now and he's kind of losing it a little bit. But uh, I said, Dad, don't worry about that. You know, don't, don't worry. I, I've never worried about any of that. Anything. You know, it means more to you than it does to me. And he's like, oh, okay. You know, he's sort of like put his mind at ease. And, um, and you know, uh, with all that my family has been through uh, and that he's been through, um, with none of us ever having grandchildren or ever getting married, you know, you know, life is kind of strange where both my parents were able to have got, get remarried and, and their, their kids ended up having grandkids so that my, my parents could hold grandchildren. Um, okay, I'll end up, sorry. I'm talking about my dad. Um, I haven't seen him for about three years. Uh, probably head down to New Jersey um, after season. But uh, anyway, I just wanted to honor my dad. Thank you. Please welcome to the stage, Violet Johnson. Yay! Yay! If anyone here has ever been to France, you know that everything has to be fresh there. As in, every morning you get fresh food, fresh cheese, fresh bread. Well, I was with my dad one time when we were visiting France, and he decided, let's go down to the fish market and let's get some fish for lunch today. And I agree with him. So we're walking down to the fish market, and there are people everywhere. There are all different colored fish. And so he says to one man who's selling these beautiful blue fish, oh, um, how much is that? And he starts having a conversation. And I'm just standing there awkwardly looking around. And then a woman comes past. So I kind of move to the side. And out of nowhere, I hear a noise. So I turn around, and a fish comes flying by me. It almost hits my cheek. It's big. I, I think it, it was blue with um, stripes. And I just go, oh, as, as it just flies by. And someone catches it. And I'm like, is this a normal occurrence here? Do people throw fish? Or is this just something that happened? And then I look over, and Dad is standing, talking to the man. And another fish comes flying by, and it almost hits him. So we're both just standing there. But he didn't notice. He was still talking to the man selling the blue fish. So I go over to him, and I say, did you notice that fish that just went by your face? And he goes, uh, what? Uh, what? Uh, um, what? <laughs> there was a fish. It went straight past your face. Oh. The next person coming up on stage is Sam Topol. Sam? Okay. In the winter of 1974-75, my wife and I were cross-country skiing in Putney, Vermont. And it was freezing. It was so cold, we had to stop. And we went into a quilt blanket store in Putney and actually bought a quilt. And as I was uh, paying... Uh, for the quilt, the uh, salesperson said, you're going to the Democratic fundraiser tonight at the high school, aren't you? Frank Church is going to be speaking there. There are some gray hairs here. Frank Church, if you don't know, was a senator from 
Idaho, who is one of my heroes. I said, no, but that sounds good. It's something to do. So we went, and it was held at the local high school. And uh, as we were online, this gentleman in front of us turns around. He was a reporter for the um, Brattleboro News or something, and said, uh, I can't go, but here, take my tickets. Oh, wow, it's even free. <clears throat> so we walked in, and it was a high school cafeteria. It was a dinner. So he said, let's just eat right away. If, if the speakers aren't any good, just leave. So we sit down at an empty table, and this woman comes over and says what I was unaware of. Would you mind having dinner with Jimmy Carter? who was truly Jimmy Who at that time. This was 19, he was, he was running in the primary in Vermont. We said, sure. And he came over to the table, this woman brought him over, and he looked terrible. The poor guy was campaigning all day. He, was, he looked hard, he looked exhausted. And he's short, I was surprised, he's about my height. Um, so he sat down and he's trying to eat his chicken dinner. And my wife and I are trying to think of intelligent questions to ask him. I knew his mother was a nurse, and he was in the Navy, and anyway, he finished the dinner, and they finally had the speaking portion of the evening, and Frank Church got up and gave an unbelievable speech. He, he was the one who crusaded and, about the abuses of the CIA, and he was just an amazing gentleman. And then Jimmy Carter gets up and gives this Fourth of July American most patriotic speech I've ever heard, very unlike Jimmy Carter. Motherhood and apple pie. But the crowd, and this is a Vermont crowd, went wild. They were in tears. They were applauding. I, unbelievable. And my wife and I left. We went down into the parking lot, and we looked at each other, and we said, we just had dinner with the next president of the United States. Okay, the next person coming on stage to tell their story is Alex Gaston. Alex, yay! All right, so this starts with another animal story. I don't know who was here last week, but I realized I've had some, I've had a surprising number of strange interactions with animals. Um, this was in Western Mass, where I went to a boarding school for a year in high school for some reason. Um, anyway, so it was out in the Berkshires, and it was called the Williston Northampton School, but it was actually in East Hampton. Um, and so it was sort of out in the woods a little bit. Um, it was ne next to a national park. Um, and the dorm I lived in was sort of separated. It was like an old townhouse. It was actually originally like and still was when I was living in it, mostly a hockey player dorm. And I was sort of the diversification program for it. <laughs> um, but they were all very nice, actually. Um, I don't know. Hockey players are nice guys, so, at least um, from that sample. The point being, it was separated a bit from campus. And to get to it, you had to walk through the big football field. And so one night, I was coming back from the library. and. 
it was sort of like a thick pea soup fog. And I was like walking, like looking down at my feet, sort of thinking about stuff. And then I looked up and like, I'm not quite sure how far away because of the fog and I'm not sure how big one of these is, was a black bear. Um, like sort of, you know, on all fours, like looking at me. And um, every time in my life that I've been in like sudden mortal peril, <laughs> I don't have any reaction whatsoever. Um, I'm at just nothing, like, so, um, the only thing that flashed through my head was, you're not supposed to surprise dangerous animals. So I said, hi. <laughs> and the, uh, the bear, like, sat back on, like, at that, it sat back and sneezed. And then it looked like Winnie the Pooh or something, so that it wasn't scary anymore. And I walked around it and went on to my dorm. And I was, then I started, like my hands started shaking. Um, and so I was like, it's, if I'm gonna get to sleep tonight, it's best not to think about this. So I started playing like computer game. But I like succeeded to such an extent that I kind of forgot to tell anyone about it until, and I guess this is the other sort of theme in Blindside. Um, my French teacher there was from Senegal, um, and he was like the product of, you know, sort of the inheritor to like French colonial education, which was um, very standardized and very like severe, but standardized to such an extent that, well, my mom, when she was a girl, lived for briefly in Western Africa because my grandfather was in the Peace Corps. And she said that in class she would recite with African children, our ancestors, the Gauls, like as part of the classroom. So anyway, this was like, this guy was, oop, okay. Um, this guy was the, probably one of the few people I've ever met who the term reserved wasn't a euphemism for like either shy or an asshole. <laughs> he was just like a truly reserved man. And um, one of the first man I ever met that I found very just impressive. Um, he was somebody I wanted to impress a lot. And um, oh, and I have to, and so his style of teaching in the class was sort of a teacher in like, in the French education sort of culture, which Senegal had sort of semi-inherited, is a very prestigious position and, and you're expected to comport yourself in a certain way with a certain dignity and um, separation from the students. So that's what I knew him as, was this sort of reserved, intimidating man. Um, and I have to say I learned more French in his class than I learned in all the rest of French I took combined. But um, okay, so one day I was getting tutored by him at the dorm where he was a dorm parent, which is like a prep school adult RA, I guess. Um, and the... Dean, one of the deans, or whatever the hell the equivalent was at that place, um, came in and was said, I just want to warn everyone, there's a bear alert. <laughs> <laughs> like, which, which, we had bear alerts, like when a bear had been sighted, and he's like, so just be careful walking back. And after he left my teacher, and the first, like, broke character for the first time, I was just saying, a bear? oh my God, like, that would be somebody, something to tell people at home if I saw a bear. Oh, 
okay, um, be quick. And I said like, so um, do you wanna go look for it? <laughs> and then I told him the story, I just told you. And that was the first person I told because I had kind of forgotten about it. Um, and he's, at first he was like, yeah, let's, and he was gonna get his coat and he was like, no, 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 that's a, he said, I, um, no, I'm on duty tonight. And I said, well, I mean, you are, but you know, you should probably walk me back to my dorm when I leave. And so we, after he first finished tutoring me, and then we went looking for bears. Um, and one last little observation, when I, when he said that, I thought of like, you know, cause Africa being the land of bizarre animals to most of us, I realized that like a bear is actually, cause I sort of saw it through his eyes, a bear is actually a weirder animal than like a lion. Like a lion is just a big version of a cat like I have. But a bear isn't a big version of anything. It's this weird thing, like there's no, <laughs> what else is like a bear? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Um, so that's it. That's okay. Uh, our next person coming up to tell a story is Kate Johnson. Yay! Okay, I have a disclaimer that um, I'm really sorry if anybody is an Al Roker fan in the audience, but I don't like Al Roker, and I've never met him. It's just my gut feeling that he's a sinister person. And um, my father, um, I have a sister and we're very, very close and my father died and it, Father's Day was coming up and it was like, what are we gonna do for Father's Day? Because we were both devastated. And we, could, you know, we just couldn't figure anything out and she goes, you know, I'm getting into running. I'm gonna start running, I'm gonna run races. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, I'm gonna run races. Um, you should do it. You know, it's really good to get out your stress and, you know. So she goes, I think that's what we should do for Father's Day. We're going to run a race. And my sister lives in New York City. And we're going to run a race um, in Central Park on Father's Day. You want to do it? I said, yeah. At least it's something to do. You know what I mean? It gave me a focus. So I practiced, like, a little bit around my neighborhood, but I'm not really a runner. And um, it sucked, you know. It's just uncomfortable and everything's just uncomfortable. Anyway, I go there, we register, we go, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And I also didn't understand this, apparently there's a difference between 5K and five miles, which I did not know and I'm dead serious and I have my master's degree, I did not know that. <laughs> so we get there and there's thousands of people and I'm like, let's just go to the back. You know, because I'm like, now I'm like, oh, my God, there's, like, runners. Everybody's stretching out, you know. And um, I'm, with, I'm with a girlfriend and my sister. And my girlfriend's 10 years older than me, and she smokes a pack of cigarettes a day, okay? Just, just so you know. So the race is starting, and I, and I were in the back, and I looked, and I saw someone in front of me, and I was like, oh, Al Roker's here. <laughs> and my sister's like, you think every black guy's Al Roker. I'm like, no. No, I don't. That is Al Roker right there. And she's like, yeah, whatever. I'm like, okay. So I was looking at him, you know, kind of checking him out. He had this, like, belt with all this gear, like, you know, like the water bottles and the hookups and all, you know, just bullshit, like, stuff, you know, everywhere. <laughs> to look good, like, he looks so good. So anyway, the guy shoots the shot or whatever they did, and people started running. And my girlfriend, oh, my God, like a gazelle, 
gone, just totally gone. I didn't even see her. My sister, as soon as we start running, turns to me and she says, don't talk to me. I'm like, what? She's, don't talk to me, don't look at me, don't try to help me. This is very in intimate for me, I don't want to see you. I'm like, what? Fine. So here I am running this race that turned out to be very, very, very long. And Al Roker's in front of me, and Al Roker isn't really running, he's like speed walking. But mind you, he's in front of me the whole time. He is just, you know, just out of reach. And the following people passed me, and I am not even kidding you, a one-legged man, and like a 90-year-old guy who looked like he had just been running, like he ran from Mexico, he was just still running. And he was just, I can't really show you because I have to jump around and I gotta be near the microphone, but anyway, it was crazy. So we're getting towards the finish line. I'm, I'm going through all kind of like emotional work in my head, you know, around my father and around Al Roker and around my girlfriend, around my sister, you know, and so we finally get towards the finish line, and I'm thinking, all right, you know what, let's use this as an opportunity. So I think, like, well, perhaps what will happen at the finish line is that somebody will be there from, like, People Magazine or something like that, and when Al Roker runs across the line, they're going to snap a picture of him, and then I will be just, you know, right that one little step ahead of him, and that will be forever captured in time. Not only will then I become famous, but also... I will be, it will be proof that like I could beat Al Roker. So I'm going, you know, we're, I'm going, I'm going. I'm, I can see the finish line. Al's up there and I'm like, come on, you know, and this is five miles, you know what I mean? And so I'm running, I'm running, I'm running. Well, whatever version of running I was doing, I don't even <laughs> really think I was running. I don't know what I was doing, but I was sweating a lot. And um, I see the tent, like there's like this little tent that when you, when you pass the finish line, you come to this little tent, and there's like a first aid and waters and all this stuff. And I see, I see my sister throwing up in one of the bins. And I looked over to the left, and I saw my girlfriend, I'm not kidding you, smoking a cigarette <laughs> behind a tree, like 500 feet over that way. So here it is. It's, it's like the final moment. I run and run and run. And we're getting to the end, and here's what the people say. They say, and now, here comes our very own Mr. L. Roker. And I was like, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. And, you know, despite my best, best efforts, I have to tell you that L. Roker beat me in the Father's Day five-mile race. Um, a smoker beat me. You know, my, <laughs> a whole bunch of people beat me. But anyway, I kept a little thing, and I'm still holding that. Like, there's going to be a time when I'm going to confront Al, and I think there's going to be a time when I'm going to be able to resolve this. But, um, you know, from, I just have to live with it for, for now, and it's hard. Thank you. Okay, next coming up to stage will be Maxwell J. Yay, Maxwell J. I guess this is sort of a family event at this point. <laughs> All right, yeah. So uh, during the uh, formative years of my kindergarten and first grade education, I, through some unknown process, became friends with at least two kids who were from very wealthy families. 
The first one was the Iranian-Canadian son of a, a wealthy dentist. And the second one was a kid who I didn't know what his parents did, but they were very rich. He had two tree houses. The first one was a simple kind of platform up in the trees made out of recycled, recycled bottles or something in, compressed into planks. And the second one apparently had a mini fridge. I didn't know. He never let me up in it. <laughs> yeah. At any rate, these, these two kids were, um, you know, they were all right. They were, I, I was friends with both of them, but the the kid who owned both of the three houses was not the, the nicest kid I knew. He was the kid who shut the lights off when other kids were in the bathroom. He was that guy. <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> I'm not here to harp on him. He's, he's, I've, I've met him recently. He's a cool guy. Yeah. <laughs> However, he did have a, I believe it was his 10th birthday party, where his parents pulled out all the stops. They hired, uh, like, a local semi-famous band to do like a march around the block to symbolize, you know, he's going around the block. I didn't, the pun was kind of lost on me as a kid, but I, I recognize it now as, eh, it's not that good. But, <laughs> yeah. At any rate, the, the highlight of this party was a planned food fight. Like, there were cakes, there were condiments, all set up so that we could have kind of this, this controlled chaos, like, relegated to his backyard. And it was, a, it was a very good time, you know? We were kids, we were throwing things at each other and getting dirty, and the, the dentist's son was apparently under the false impression that it would be more fun to team up with kids and try and actually win the food fight than just to get, you know, covered in cake, which was obviously the point of the whole thing. So he, he and his team, the kind of the separatists of the group, kind of, hold up in their treehouse for a while to try and, you know, gain a tactical advantage, keep everyone, kind of weigh down some suppressing fire with the mustard, and they just, they stayed up there for a good while, and eventually, you know, the food ran out, all the kids were just covered in stuff, and they started to go in to towel off. However, the, uh, the separatists up in their fort were still, you know, they were still hungry with the, the, the bloodlust of battle, and as their ammunition stores dwindled, they apparently made the decision to go nuclear without, our, uh, without any indication. So as we were, as we were you know, sitting there hosing off after a, a fun day of throwing sugar at each other, we were suddenly surprised by a hail of ice cubes. And let's just say that I don't know exactly what the, the rules of food war are, but that, that was a definite violation of, like, the Geneva Conventions. <laughs> and it was, uh, yeah, the, the parents cleared us out pretty quick after that. I, I don't know what happened to the kids up in the treehouse, but I haven't seen them since. Okay, next coming up on stage is P.K. Noonan. P.K. Noonan. Okay. Um, hello. Nice. <laughs> so my story's not really funny, but um, ever since I was little, I've really just kind of had these two friends that I've stuck by, you know, as girls do, um, but into high school we kind of separated, and so 
I went in as a freshman with braces and almost a unibrow alone. So I found this group of girls in one of my classes, and they seemed to me they were the epitome of what a friendship should be. They made fun of each other constantly, and, but underneath all the cruel jokes and pranks, there was real love for each other, at least I thought. <laughs> so, you know, I felt so special when they invited me to one of their sleepovers. Thought that it was really cool. I became friends with them over a couple of months. We'd have great times. You know, we tried to set up some awesome, awesome games, like we planned on doing a paint war, but um, no one thought to bring the paint. <laughs> so that didn't work out very well. Um, we were just, it was a group of girls that would just constantly berate each other, but would say, oh, I'm just kidding, or I love you after. We would hang out almost every single day after school. And I thought that it was awesome. I had a group of people to walk down the halls with. I had a group of people that made me realize that it doesn't matter what other people see you as in school, you know? I thought that it, I was on top of the world. I had a group of seven girls who thought that I was so cool because my dad had a motorcycle and a mustache. <laughs> but, you know, they didn't think I was that cool, I found out. Um, going into my sophomore year this past year, one day I was walking home alone after not receiving any text that day, which was a strange occurrence because we had about four group chats going on. And I saw them all walking down the hill, down the way to Starbucks, where we would always hang out. But I hadn't received an invitation, so I just figured we were going our separate ways that day. But when I came across them, and I said, oh, hey, guys, what's going on? I said, oh, um, we thought you lost your phone. Um, we've heard some weird rumors going around about you, so we just assumed that, you know, um, you wanted to be by yourself today. We didn't think you would want to be with us because you're clearly not what we thought you were. So that hurt. <laughs> but, um, you know, being the great actress that I am, I said, screw you. <laughs> I'm going home. And um, then I went home and cried. <laughs> um, and after that day, they were like, they didn't text me. And I received a text um, Friday night saying, meet us in the dugouts after school on Monday, and we'll see where we stand. So I spent the entire weekend terrified of what my friends thought I had done. I tried to call them. Now I had turned everyone away because these group of girls, they were not kind to people outside of the, the group. I was blinded by how infatuated I had become with this sensation of being a part of something, but it was nothing. They were terrible. They called, the, they called people horrible names and made fun of teachers. It, <laughs> looking back, I'm so embarrassed of my behavior. But, so, Monday comes around, 
And last block on Monday, I got a text, oh yeah, <laughs> we're not mad at you, don't worry. I was like, yeah, sure. So I go down to the dugouts <clears throat> Monday after school, and they say, we hear that you've been telling rumors about us. My friends, some of them had had problems with how they felt, and they've had to go to hospitals for help. And I've been there. I had been there for them through everything and made them sure that they know how much I cared about them. But when I was sad, no one came to my help. So I felt alone, and I didn't tell them things. And they said that I hadn't been honest with them enough and that I made, looking at me made them sick, made them feel as though I was a traitor and someone who didn't deserve to even be glanced upon in the hallways. I was abandoned by all of my friends. And for weeks in school, I looked up different schools that I could go to where I could find some refuge in a single person that I knew because I thought that everyone hated me, thought that people thought that I would be so, such a terrible person that would want, would want to be friends with me. But after a few weeks, and I play hockey, so I met a girl on my team, and I would hang out with her on the weekends. I would text her. I reconnected with my old friends. And it was, I know now that it was nothing to do with me, that it was those girls. But they just sprung it on me, so surprisingly. And now I have lots of friends, and I'm considered popular at my school. It's just, it goes to show that some people aren't as they seem, but you just have to know who you really are and not let someone else tell you who you are. All right, let's bring the next person up to tell the story. All right, Terrence, come up on the stage. Terrence. So I want to tell a little story about um, justice and uh, being blind. And I got assigned a case years ago. It was, um, it was it was an attempted murder charge, and um, and the guy was guilty, um, clearly, and he admitted that. And so I was meeting with him, and you know, ordinarily you can you can find something. You know, there's some sort of constitutional issue, um, there's some factual issue, and if you don't have any of that, I mean, there's a very famous line about if you have the if you have the law, you pound the law. If you have the facts, you pound the facts. If you have nothing, you pound the table. Um, and this was going to be a case where there, I would just pound and pound and pound the table. So I'm meeting with him, and he's a, it's like maybe five foot two, three, very sort of timorous individual. And he worked in an industrial plant where they made um, components for church clocks. Very discreet sort of job, but it was a very, you know, sort of blue collar welding type of thing, and he had a workbench. And there were a bunch of other workbenches around him. And everybody else in this entire factory would just constantly put this guy down. He would come up, and they would do these things that just psychologically were, were driving him over the edge. He, um, 
He hated, and this sounds so obvious, but nobody else in the plan thought this, he just hated misogyny. And so they would put up porn pictures at his, at his table. He would come in, and there'd be like a, a centerfold, and he would just come in, and he'd just kind of get all nervous and be like, why do you guys do this to me? And he'd tear it down, and he'd crumple it up and throw it down. And he was also incredibly uh, human and, and, and warm-spirited, and people would fly our Confederate flag. And, you know, I know that's very current right now, but this was years ago, and he would just say, you have to take that down. Do you know what that stands for? You have to take that flag down. And they just, you know, they would respond that, you know, shut the hell up, and you're an idiot, and they'd deflate his tires, and they just tortured this guy. And so eventually the misogyny, the sexism, the racism, the anti-Semitism, because he was Jewish, um, and they would just pound him with this. So, but he was a welder, and so he made this very fascinating sort of medieval weapon one day. <sighs> He's kind of like the Steve Buscemi character in just about any movie, you know? He's just at home, and he's like, I'm going to get those guys. <laughs> but he had the, the skill to do it, and so he fashioned this. It was, it was like a, a, a steel rod that fit in his palm, and then protruding through his fingers were these spikes. And so he just spent the whole weekend, and he's just imagining in his mind, he's like, I am going to kill all of them. I am going to do this. And so he gets it, and it's really nice, and he goes in on Monday, and sure enough, there's more just random pornography. And instead of just tearing it down, he turns, and he knows who's doing it. He's like, I am going to kill you. And he starts chasing this guy. Now, this isn't just the story, because this is on video. They had video in the plant. So he's chasing this guy around, and he's trying to kill him. And they finally get outside, and somebody tackles him from the back, and so, boom, you know, there it is, he gets charged. And I'm meeting with him, and I'm like, listen, you're gonna go to jail for a long time. Um, we should really try and work something out here. And he's like, what I did was right. Those guys deserved it. I'm just sorry they stopped me. I'm like, all right, well, we should back up morally. Um, and just say that, you know, maybe what you were doing was okay, but, um, you know, you didn't want to follow through. And he's like, oh, I would have done that. I would have done that. Oh, my God. That guy, every day he drives up in his pickup truck and he's got that Confederate flag and I tell him, you got to take that down. I'm like, all right. So I go on a meet with the DA. And um, I'm like, listen, you know, maybe we can work something out. And he's like, well, you know, we'll take 10 years. And I'm like, I go back and I talk to my guy. And he's like, I'm taking this to trial. And not only that, I'm going to testify. Because I want them to have to take the stand. I want them to have to say what they've done. I'm like, all right. You understand that you're going to prison for a long time. That we have nothing. We have, we have all the witnesses. We have video. And now he tells me he wants to testify. And I tell him, you've got to tell the truth. You can't just get up on the stand and make something. He's like, oh, no, no. No, I'm going to say I was going to kill all of them. I'm like, okay, so this is going to be the end of your life. And he's like, what I was doing was right. I'm like, all right, great, great. So I'm, I'm prepping for this trial. And um, I'm like, this is not going to go well at all. And there, and there had just been a case where this guy had been convicted and when the guilty sentence came down from the jury, he had turned and stabbed his attorney in the eye. So I was like, all right, this is going to be tough. Um, so we go through the whole trial. He testifies. He's like, yeah, I told him I was going to kill him, and I would have done it too. But during jury selection, I had gotten the veneer, 
and, and, and I got a couple people on the veneer that I thought I could work with. But then he testifies that he was going to do it. Then the video comes in, and they show him, and, and he's definitely guilty. And I'm sitting there, and the jury, within, I'd say, 50 minutes, comes back. I'm like, oh, man, this is bad. So I go to the desk, and I move everything off the desk. <laughs> no pens. There's nothing, okay? It's just all just wide open air. I'm giving the bailiffs tons of space to, like, get this, you know, lock them up. And as the jury's coming out, they come out from the back, and one of the jurors makes eye contact with me, and she's about a 55-year-old black woman, and she just goes... Is she hitting on me? Or what is going on here? Not guilty. Boom, the guy was out. I mean, he, I, I turned to congratulate him. He's already out. The judge is like, hey, hey, you got lucky. You got lucky. So on that day, justice, justice might have been blind, but justice was done. Thank you. Uh, the next, the last person coming up uh, to tell a story is Melissa. Melissa. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Sorry. Now, how do you say your last name? Wenig. Wenig. Okay. Sorry. So I don't know what you all do in the bathroom, <laughs> but but my husband and I we read. Um, brochures about rafting the Grand Canyon, taking trips to Costa Rica, taking sailing trips around the world. And um, a few years ago, we got a hold of these brochures about barging, self-barging down the Canal du Midi. Another French story. So we collected them and we read them and you know, there are these boats, they're like 32 feet long, and they look very pretty. They have umbrellas and bikes on board, and it looks like something would be really so fun to do. And, and the caption, you know, the, the writing in there says, even a child can propel these boats. Even a child can drive it. So Joel and I go, that's for us, right? <laughs> so we sign up. We, we sign up for this trip, and... Um, we first go to Provence, and we stay at a beautiful bed and breakfast, and then we get ready to go to Argent Menevois. Nobody knows where Argent Menevois is, but it is on the map, and we head south, and they tell you that you need to get your provisions before you come to the boat. So we stop in a grocery store that we think, or a supermarket that we think is near um, Argent Menevois, and we go inside and we get everything that we need, but we have no idea where Agent Menevois is because there are no signs. So we pull out our map and we ask the cashier in our most wretched French um, where this is, and nobody knows. No one's ever heard of it. Nobody. They get everybody around. Everybody's coming. No, no. So Joel and I walk out to the parking lot to our little rented car, and this guy runs up behind us. And he said, follow me, follow me. Now, my husband is not somebody to just follow anybody, but we have no choice because we have to get there by 4 o'clock or we can't do this. It's just not going to happen. So we get in our car and we follow him. 
Jill's going, this is not going to happen, right? And we don't, we don't go more than, what, two kilometers? And there's a sign that says, and the guy waves us along, and we can't figure it out. We can't figure out why nobody knows that there's this little town on the other side of the river, and this, this, this restaurant, not this restaurant, but this um, grocery store was on the other side of the river. How do, it's like, we live in Cambridge. How would somebody from Brighton not know that Harvard Square was on the other side of the Charles? But nobody knew. So we get there, and we're very excited. It's, it's getting dark, though, and the guy meets us, and, and people so far in France have been really, really wonderful to us. We have met wonderful people. Nobody's been rude, but this guy is like, the exception. He's, he's not pleased that we're late. And um, he gets us aboard the boat and he says, this is very simple. Even a child can do it. <laughs> so he starts teaching Joel how to do this. And Joel can't do it. We can, and he's an engineer, and he also can sail, but he cannot make this boat make these three-point turns. And he's getting more and more discouraged, and this French guy's getting more and more angry. And finally, we just say, okay, forget it. We, you know, we're just going to stay here for the night. We'll, we'll stay in the boat overnight. We won't start out till the next morning. And poor Joel, you know, it's like this is the first time that I've seen a grown man cry over something that a six-year-old kid is supposed to be able to do, right? <laughs> Needless to say, we were a little blindsided by the, by the literature. Um, the next morning we woke up and we were making three-point turns all over the place. We just needed a little rest. We were just really exhausted and um, we were very embarrassed because this, this French guy made us feel like we were idiots, which we probably were. Anyway, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast 2015 summer season. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theatre Company, Kate Langstaff and Vanessa Vardabedian and is sponsored by WOMR 92.1 FM and Boobalas by the Bay Restaurant in Provincetown. Find your next opportunity to join us live and tell your story at facebook.com slash Mosquito Story Slam or via Twitter at Mosquito Story. Listen to all Mosquito podcasts on soundcloud.com slash Mosquito Story Slam. Tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.